0: Amen. So, we're looking at Matthew 1 and moving from Matthew 1 into Matthew 2. There is the other story that we read on the screen this morning. Another gospel writer, that was Luke, wrote a story from uh, his perspective under the leading of the Holy Spirit and included elements that aren't in this story. So, this morning we're going to look at it from Matthew's perspective. And really, Uh, We're backing up to verse 18 of chapter 1 where it says, Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, now get this, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Right away there's scandal in this story. We love a story that's got good scandal. Here's a woman who's not yet married, she's betrothed. Uh, Betrothal is a legal engagement. Engagement today is very personal between two people. They go to their special place, or maybe it's a meadow surrounded by woods, and a guy gets down on one knee and offers a ring to his wife-to-be and asks for her to marry him, and she says yes. And it's very personal between two people. Uh, First century here with the Jews, This betrothal is an engagement, but it's actually a legal process. And so, if Joseph is going to be married to Mary, he goes to the local officials, probably the Jewish officials in the synagogue, and signs a legal contract that says, That woman is mine, yet we're not married yet. And so, it's almost a down payment legally saying, She's mine. Legally, we're bound together, but we haven't gone through the process or the ceremony of. Okay, so we're at the betrothal part now, and Mary has been given over to Joseph, but they haven't been married, and she's found to be with child here. The baby bump is starting to take place, and Matthew doesn't spend a whole lot of time explaining all of the details here, but he does share with us, the reader, where this child came from. He says in verse 18 that she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So here's Joseph, not having yet received the message that this child was from the Holy Spirit. He sees his wife to be pregnant, of course wondering who the guilty party is. And in verse 19 we see that he was a just man and unwilling to put her to public shame. He chose to divorce her quietly. He didn't want to make a big scene about this. He thought it was done. He thought his future was ruined. Well, verse 20, along comes God intervening in the story. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, that is Joseph, in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the holy spirit she will bear a son and you shall call his name jesus for he will save his people from their sins so joseph has this vision this dream it's given to him from the lord he believes it he receives it by faith and he continues on in the marriage trusting that that which is in his wife's to be womb is from the lord himself we move down to chapter 2 It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Um, Jesus is born. And the next scene that Matthew presents us with is this scene in which wise men are coming from the east. Now, who are these wise men? Some of your texts might say that they are magi. Um, We think that they are scholarly individuals from the East who studied the stars and believed that the stars had something to say about everyday life, Uh, maybe a blend of astronomy and astrology today. Uh, They believed that there was something supernatural about the stars and their alignment, and these magi have come to Jerusalem following a star. In verse 2, the tensions begin to rise in the story. These foreigners from the east come to this capital city, and they ask the question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, think about this question for just a moment. The head of Israel at the time is a man named Herod. And the Jews couldn't stand Herod. He wasn't their elected king. He wasn't even a Jew. He was Rome's appointed leader over this group of people in this Israel area. And the Jews couldn't stand him. But he was like a puppet king that the emperor had put over them. And he was a paranoiac. He was known for being finicky and for knocking off people next to him whom he thought could threaten the throne. You know how rivalries presented themselves during this time in history where a king could get knocked off and then whoever was next would take the throne. Herod was so paranoid that he even knocked off two of his sons whom he thought were seeking to overthrow him. And now this question that he hears is this, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? It's not Where's the one who's been born who will someday become the king of the Jews? Their question, these magi who have rolled into the capital city of Israel, their question is, there's somebody who is a rightful heir to the throne right now, and it's not you, Herod. So these magi come into town. It causes quite a stir. A stir here in which you could think of a local town greeted by this entourage of important-looking people saying, you're supposed to have a king? They state the reason for why they came. In verse 2, it says, For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now again, there's elements in this story that, if we pause to think about it, we wonder, how is a star leading them to Jerusalem? Well, it's interesting that, One of the Old Testament prophecies um, made by a man named Balaam um, talks about a star that was to rise in Judah. Numbers 24, verse 17, Balaam said this about a thousand years earlier, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter or a king shall rise out of Israel. See, a thousand years earlier, this prophecy had been given in the east. That's where Balaam went. He went east to give this prophecy. And it's quite possible that this prophecy would have been passed down from generation to generation of religious groups. And here are these magi believing that the prophecy has come true during their lives. They've been prompted, as they've studied the stars, to travel hundreds of miles to come and worship the king. And Herod, the appointed ruler... Here of Israel, he doesn't really give a rip what they want to do. He's more concerned about what their question means. To the point that when Herod and Jerusalem hear this, again, the text says they are all stirred up. Now, perhaps you've seen with the leaves that have fallen off the trees, the branches are bare. Every once in a while in these trees, you'll see a bee's nest that's been there. You can see them now that the leaves are gone. And imagine taking a big stick during the middle of summer and going up and poking that big bee's nest. You're stirring it up. The hornets, the bees are flying all around. That's the idea for this word, that Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem, they're all stirred up. On one hand, the Jews are thinking, has our Messiah, has our King truly been born? And for Herod... It's stirring up fears and insecurities. So Herod, what does he do next? He gathers together all the chief priests and the scribes, and he asks them a question. And he says, hey, according to your religious books, according to the prophecies in your religion, he wasn't even a Jew, keep in mind, where is the Christ, your supposed leader and savior, supposed to be born? You can imagine an insecure king asking this question, you know he's not as innocent as, you know, he appears to be. In verses 5 and 6, the religious leaders answer Herod honestly by telling him that it is supposed to be Bethlehem. That's supposed to be the location where the Messiah is to be born, and you can see it here in your text where you look. They quote Micah chapter 5 verse 2, verse 5 of, chapter 2 of Matthew, they say, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod now has the answer that he wants. The prophecies say that this newborn king, that this new entourage of scholars are seeking He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So he gathers the Magi back to himself and asks about the date that the star appeared. He wants to know if this is true, how old might this boy king be? So they come back to him, and who knows how they exchange information. But Herod summons them, and he says to them in verse 8, Go and search diligently for the child in Bethlehem. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So the wise men take off to Bethlehem. And in verse 8, it says, Behold the star that they had seen. When it rose, it went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now, if you just step back for a moment from the story, you remember that they came from the east, and they were led by this star to the west, to Jerusalem. They get to Jerusalem, and apparently they don't see the star anymore. They have this exchange with Herod. Herod sends them on their way to Bethlehem. Where is Bethlehem in relationship to Jerusalem? It's due south. So this star that led them east now has moved 90 degrees and is now leading them to this little town that is approximately five to seven miles south of Jerusalem. And it says that when they saw the star here in verse 10, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Why would they rejoice exceedingly with great joy in that moment? Well, think about it. If you've studied the stars and you see this star continually in the west and it leads you to a place, a city, a capital city of Jerusalem, you go into Jerusalem, you state your case for being there, you don't see the star anymore, but perhaps the next night after you've been sent on your way, you search the sky, it's not to the west anymore, it's not among those other stars that you had seen, but now as they scan the sky, it has moved to the south. You see, if you're into star-gazing and star-searching, you're realizing this isn't supposed to happen like that. Things don't move like that. The sky doesn't move 90 degrees overnight like that. Well, obviously, God's hand is all over this. We know the one who created the stars. That's God himself. He's providentially using something in the sky to guide these men, these specific men, for his purposes— this is God guiding people according to his plan. Well, when these religious wise men see the star again, the Bible says that they're rejoicing with joy, and they move down to the place where it guides them. Verse 10 says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceeding with great joy, verse 11, and going into the house, it leads them to Bethlehem. They saw the child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshiped him. Matthew simply says they enter into this place. Now, just so you know, this story, this event, could have taken place weeks after Jesus was born. It could have taken place perhaps up to two years after Jesus was born. Mary and Joseph are in a house, they're in Bethlehem. Perhaps they've established themselves there. Um, And here comes the surprise guests these guests from the east, and they say, we're not here to see you or you. We're here to see him, this little child in your house. And they come in, and the text says that they offer gifts of gold. Gold was often a gift given to a king. They offer frankincense, which is this fragrant material that was used for sacrifices oftentimes. The priests would use this. And then they offered myrrh. It's a perfume extracted from trees in Arabia. This was often used on someone who was about to die. We see at the end of John's Gospel that Nicodemus came with 75 pounds of myrrh for the body of Jesus. And so here are these wise men entering into this house. We don't know how many there were. The Bible doesn't say there's three. But they come presenting gifts, a gift of gold for a king, frankincense for a priest, myrrh perhaps foreshadowing Jesus' death. All three of these gifts are rare and costly. We don't know anything more about the evening other than that when they were finished carrying out this act of worship, they are warned, warned in a dream not to return to Jerusalem until Herod. So it says in verse 11, Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The rest of the story unfolds that Herod went in a rampage and went down to Bethlehem and ordered that all the children two years and under were to be killed. But God in his providence had appeared to Joseph in a dream and told Joseph, it's time to get out of town, I want you to go down to Egypt, which Joseph did, and God protected this little family. Now that's the story. That's Matthew's story. Joseph and Mary coming together, these wise men coming to Jerusalem, then to Bethlehem, the wise men worshiping the Christ child. And there are several themes in the story that we could focus on. There's the theme of God governing all the events in order to bring about his purposes— You see that happening with the wise men being led, and then Joseph and Mary actually fleeing this area and being warned by God to go down to Egypt. There's a theme of God fulfilling his prophecies, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, what God has spoken was actually fulfilled. But there's another theme here that I want us to focus on, and that is the theme of worship. There are two types of people in this story which represent each one of us. There are those who worship Jesus and come to him, like the wise men, and there are those who do their best to push him out, like Herod. And the question is, which one of these parties represents you this morning? Herod did everything he could to eliminate the worship of Jesus in his life. He wanted him gone He was insecure about who Jesus was, this king. And then there are these wise men who, by it must be a work of God in their heart to recognize this star, see this star, and want to follow this star, are taking steps toward Jesus and worshiping him for who he is, a king. And everyone in the world falls into one of these two patterns of being a worshiper or a non-worshipper. Either actively coming to him, maybe not knowing everything about who he is. Who of us actually knows everything about Jesus? Who of us knew everything about him when we came to him? But we're either actively coming to him or consciously choosing not to worship him for one reason or another. And perhaps like Herod, Jesus threatens your way of life because he is a king. Or perhaps it could be that the people who surround you are religious in nature and they've left a bitter taste in your mouth. You've attended a religious group and they were hypocritical to the nth degree. Or it felt like they were using the worship of Jesus in a very judgmental, self-righteous sense and you're saying, that's not for me. The story of Scripture centers around the arrival, the person of Jesus. We've seen this for the past two weeks. What is in your heart? Is your heart moving toward him, or is your heart moving away from him? Let's talk about worship for just a minute. When we use the term worship, As we see it in Scripture and talk about it that way, we're saying that God himself is worthy of the highest glory and honor in our lives. We are saying that he has worth, more worth than anyone or anything else in our lives. Is that true of you this morning? Does Jesus have more worth than anyone or anything else in your life? And when we see worship described in Scripture, oftentimes... It is presented with a posture that helps us appreciate what worship is. It's pre- presented with this posture of bowing down. A couple of texts that I want you to see. Psalm 95, verse six says, "O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker." Revelation chapter four, verse 10. Looking at the throne room of God, the 24 elders fall down before him and worship him who lives forever and ever. Notice the posture here. When the Bible is calling people to worship God, it is calling us to have a heart that is bent down towards him, bent in submission to him, bent acknowledging him for who he is. And it's not simply this this like, religious obligation where you come and get down on one knee and you bend the knee of your heart to the Lord. This is a celebration that you see throughout Scripture. It's, it's an enjoyment or a worth, and out of that enjoyment or worth because of what you see God to be, you bow the knee of your heart to him. Now this weekend, there's going to be about one million people gathering together in stadiums around the U.S. to give worth attribute worth and this whole stadium has been built in in a bent way if you will it's been bent around a field and it's been bent up in such a way that everybody can focus on the field and watch their favorite football team watch their favorite quarterback their favorite wide receiver their favorite running back and when a touchdown is scored Everybody in the stadium attributes worth. Everybody cheers and says, yes, that's my quarterback, or yes, that's my team. They're saying, yes, we love what's taking place. The whole place erupts. That's a a picture of worship. Your heart has been given over to that particular moment. Or maybe it's not sports. It could be that your latest episode on your TV or streaming device, whatever, is on. And so in your room, your room is bent towards that screen that's on the wall. And so the chair is facing that direction. This chair is facing that direction. And your body is actually sitting in a, in a way so that you can view and see everything that's taking place. And you sit down with your popcorn, your favorite drinks, and your joy, and you just watch it, soak it in. And at the end, you say, man, that was fascinating. These things are not morally bad. These are good things. These are enjoyments in life. If you've been with us through Ecclesiastes, there are things to enjoy that God has given us in life, and we say, thank you, Lord, for these things. But the question is, where does Jesus rank in your life? Where is Jesus at in your life? How is your heart postured or bent towards Jesus? Is it facing him, or is it? facing something else? The wise men facing Jesus or Herod facing something else? Because there's two types of people in the story. There are those who worship him because they believe he is worthy of worship, and there are those who really don't want him at all in their lives. Where are you? Where's your heart? And you might say, but why? Why is he worthy of worship? I mean. No disrespect, but I can't even see Jesus. At least I can turn on the TV and see a super athlete doing something amazing. Or I can turn on the TV and watch my favorite episode. Or I can go to that place and, and find enjoyment that my heart is given over to. Why is it that you and this Bible is saying that Jesus is worthy of worship? Why is it that the elders, this throne room image in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, Why is it that there's this picture of worship? Like, give me something to hold on to so that I will be convinced that all of these other things are less than him. Why should my heart be bent towards worship? It's a great question. Let me give you two reasons. They're found here in the story. And the first reason is this. Matthew 1, verses 20 and 21. The angel came to Joseph in this dream verse 21 says she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus and what will he do he will save his people from their sins reason number one why Jesus is worthy of worship is that only Jesus can save you from your sins Over the last two years, we have felt the chaos of a world that has been flipped upside down. Um, Our lives have been groaning for normalcy. The question, when can we just get back to normal? And in, in our minds and in our lives, we long for a person or a company that can take all of this stuff away and just get things back to normal. Yet, take a step back. If you think the last two years have been messed up, really, the world has been messed up for thousands of years. There has been more than plagues that have swept the world. There's been injustice where wrongs have been committed, there's been war that has gone on unjustly, there has been murder, there's been cheating, there's been lying, corruption, stealing, evil and sin continue to present themselves as variants in all of our lives, taking on one form or another that we never saw coming. And we feel those variants. We feel those effects of evil and sin in our lives. And here's what the Bible says. We're all part of that problem. Romans 3 says that we have all sinned and fallen short Of the glory of God. All of the injustice, all of the groaning that takes place in the world is not just a world problem. We're part of it, and we need to be saved from it. And the Bible says that all of these sins and all of these actions, as we heard in Nancy's prayer earlier, are not just committed on a horizontal level, person to person. We are all connected to God in the sense that God created us and we're accountable to him. So every action that takes place on a horizontal level is also an action that is committed to or against God. And So we all know where we stand before him. We stand guilty before him, deserving of eternal judgment, and what the Bible says is going to be hell forever and ever. We deserve that consequence because we are part of the problem. But here's the good news. Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. And he did this by going to the cross and laying down his life in our place. And instead of us having to take the punishment that we deserve forever and ever, Jesus willfully took the punishment that we deserved. One reason why Jesus is worthy of being at the center of your life for worship is because through him and him alone do you have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's it. If it's not for Jesus, we're doomed to hell forever and ever. And if you don't have Jesus in your life this morning, God invites you to receive him as your Savior. There's a second reason why we should worship Jesus and that is simply for who he is for what he's done he can save us from our sins and then second for who he is and we see this in verse 23 who is he this is chapter one behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us who is Jesus Is Jesus just some ordinary schmo? No, he's God here. He's not just another guy in history who made himself known. He's not another even hero in history who did things well and got written about in books. He's God. Jesus is God who has willfully made himself known by coming in the flesh. I mean you think about this for just a moment let your mind wander this infinite great god now descends and chooses to take on human flesh to be contained in human flesh we read a passage earlier in the service John chapter 1 who is this god John chapter 1 in the beginning was the word When we see the word, word there, that's a name or a title for Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the word, that is Jesus, he became flesh and dwelt among us. So here's the creator, made all things super galaxies, all these macro elements in the universe, all the way down to the nano cells in your lungs that are exchanging oxygen right now for your blood. Well, this creator became flesh, dwelt among us, and John can say, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the Father, this glory we saw full of grace and truth. So John's argument is simple here, like we have seen the creator. This creator is God himself. Now think about it. What do you and I do with those who create things? Um, How do we think about Elon Musk? All right, you know, there's varying opinions about him, but he gets the credit for revolutionizing a car industry and creating this SpaceX thing that's going on, and people going up or doing all kinds of things. We're like, wow, that person is pretty intelligent. If he speaks, maybe we should listen to what he's speaking about with his specialty. All right, some of you aren't into that stuff. I'm not really either. Some of you are more into the Chip and Joanna Gaines type, right? And so if Joanna speaks, oh, boy, oh, man, mercy. We got to have what Joanna says, and we attribute worth to her. You might have a favorite author. They write, you enjoy the book, you attribute worth to that individual. But think about it, all of these are just narrow specialties in comparison to the creator who has created all things. And that is Jesus himself. And based on that, the one who has come to save us from our sins and who he is, the creator, He should alone be at the center of your life. Your life should be bent towards him, attributing worth to him. Let me just conclude with this. It's kind of interesting to think of these wise men, these magi, traveling several hundred miles in order to worship the Christ. And yet you have to admit that this must be an act of God. God's the one that's leading them by the star. God is the one who in the fullness of time sent his son putting all of these things together. And today we gather around the Bible and God leads us once again. For some, it might be your first trip to actually worshiping Christ. I would think that everybody in here has heard the name Jesus Christ. But not everybody in here has had their life bent towards him in worship. And so God could be leading you along today saying, if that is true, what's in the Bible, I need to recalibrate some things in my own heart and in my own life. Sinclair Ferguson tells about a time he was pastoring in Scotland. And a woman approached him with an envelope that was thick with paper inside of it. And anytime a pastor receives an envelope that has papers folded up thickly inside of it, you're wondering, should I put on my defensive shields? Because the thicker it is, the more complaints that could be inside of it. Well, actually, to his surprise, this was her story. Her story went like this, that she was a student in Scotland, sitting in a lab nearby his church. On Wednesday each week, the church bell would ring at 1 o'clock, and it wasn't simply announcing the 1 o'clock hour. It was announcing the 1 o'clock service that they had in the afternoon. This lady would hear that bell regularly each week, and over the course of time, God used a church bell to start ringing her heart. And she's sitting there in lab thinking, there's that group of people who are gathering again. There's that idea that they are centering around. There's that Savior whom they proclaim as being worthy of worship. And so she's sitting in this lab, and God is continuing to work on her week after week after week after week, until one day she's saying, I made the journey from the lab to your church and sat through a church service heard the word of God preached, and something happened in my heart. I saw who Christ was for the first time. She's heard of him, but now she came to believe in him. It was her journey westward, if you will. And for some of you, that could be happening today. You were just nudged to be here. It's Christmas service, and you're hearing about Jesus for the very first time. So you've been led here. The Bible has been sitting on a shelf in your home, and perhaps God has just been poking you along the way, saying, that's not just an ordinary book. You should open it up and read it. You're here. Here is Christ, the wonderful Savior, who offers the forgiveness of your sins forever and ever. So the question that you should be asking right now is, will you begin a relationship with him today? Will you be a worshiper of him today? Let's pray.